This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 229 from Monday, April 18th, 2011, the Cassini Mission. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hi, Pamela. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? I'm doing really well. This is still the uh, worst summer ever. Although, again, <laughs> I, you know, because we're recording in uh, July, but it's really the April, people wonder why it's a uh, bad summer, but uh, yeah, it's a terrible summer. We're, we're, we're just prognosticating the weather. Yeah, the, yeah. I predict that in July 2011, near Vancouver Island, the weather will be horrible. But uh, yeah, so and, and did you have any more reminders? Now, we're going to be doing the live episode of Astronomy Cast at DragonCon Labor Day weekend. And we're going to be doing a special Astronomy Cast with Chloe, with your daughter. We are, right? We yeah. Are? Okay. Yeah. At, at DragonCon? <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a half hour okay. show with Chloe. Questions from a nine-year-old. She's got all kinds of questions. But there's going to be lots of our friends are going to be there. Phil. Um, Kevin Grazier. Kevin Grazier. So we'll probably do a live show with, with all of them as well. And we're also going to do, Matt Lowry and I are going to do a physics demonstration show where we attempt to not kill each other with things like beds of nails. Cool. That sounds great. So. Yeah, come out, come watch us be nerdy dorks doing pressure shows and playing with lasers and blowing up balloons inside of balloons because we can and uh, stuff like that. That's cool. I'm trying to think how you do that. It's like a white black balloon inside a white balloon. Uh, you, you get one of those transparent balloons like they have at floral stores that you put teddy bears inside yeah and you fill it with either dark purple or dark blue or one of those really dark sets of small balloons shine a green laser through the clear balloon and shine it on the dark colored balloon and the dark colored balloon will expand and explode and it's a glorious thing that's really cool i want one of those blue lasers <laughs> I hear they're terrifying. <laughs> I'm already scared by my green laser, so I can't even imagine having a blue laser. All right, let's get on with the show. So last week, we talked about the Italian astronomer Giovanni Cassini. This week, we'll talk about the mission that shares his name, NASA's Cassini spacecraft. This amazing mission is orbiting Saturn right now, sending back thousands of high-resolution images of the ringed planet and its moons. All right, Pam, let's talk about Cassini. And I'll just go like right from the beginning. Cassini is the is like the highlight mission of my life. Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think of all the missions that I've been most excited about, reporting Universe Today, you know, I it launched around the time that I started working on the site and got to uh, Saturn, what, 2004? And, yep. you know, and, and I've been sort of, it's, it's like followed pace with my entire uh, career. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited about it about Cassini so and it's got a really long history I mean it like yeah. it goes back to like what before we were born I think <laughs> right. uh, not quite not quite not quite it goes back to elementary school perfect so so yeah what's the beginning of Cassini well back in 1982 
folks were trying to figure out what next, what do we do? And this was when we were still working off the Voyager probes were out there still sending back data. We still had the Mariner missions. And this was supposed to be part of the Mariner Mark II set of missions. It was going to be, it wasn't called Cassini back then. It was, it had a long, complicated name involving, as you might guess, Saturn. And then there was also a sister mission, a comet rendezvous asteroid flyby. And the idea was these were both going to be Mariner missions, have very similar hardware, have basically save money by doing two things that are very similar, except then there wasn't money to do two missions. And, well, with only enough money to do one, the decision was made that Saturn was the much more interesting target. And... Cassini became a standalone, highly specialized mission that uh, was optimized to learn as much as possible about Saturn. Right. And, and this is the first time, although missions had been sent towards Saturn before then, you'd had the Pioneer and the, and the Voyagers, they were flyby missions. And so the goal right. with Cassini was to not fly past the planet, but to actually go into orbit and then get do flybys of all the moons and gather a lot more science really close up. Right. And, and so there was this really nice laundry list of science missions where we were trying to better understand the dynamics of the rings. Are things like the spokes that had been seen real? We were trying to figure out what is the surface history of all of the different moons. Do they share the same history? Do they have different histories due to differences in origins? Then there's just the weird things like Iopetus being a two-colored object. And, well, we didn't even really know before Cassini how long it took Saturn to rotate on its axis. So all these different things about all of the different moons and about the magnetosphere and about, well, Saturn itself and its clouds, all these different things got piled onto the future of Cassini. But along with piling on the goals, they piled on the instruments. And this is a mission that had a healthy enough budget that it was able to do all the things that it wanted to do. It came in at $3.26 billion, which <laughs> is, is a hefty price yeah. tag, but it worked. It's a big spacecraft. Yeah. And so it's really well equipped to do this work. So when did the mission finally come together then? So it finally launched in 1997. So you were getting Universe Today started. I was uh, contemplating my first year of graduate school and was completely oblivious to the entire thing. And what's interesting, though, is it almost died many times between its 1982 conception and its 1997 launch. Congress kept trying to kill it off in the 90s. And what saved it is this mission, while a sweetheart of the U.S. space program and while largely funded by the U.S. space program, was actually one of the missions that helped really heal our relationships with the European Space Agency and its different member nations. In, in the late 80s, early 90s, we worked to make this a really solid collaboration where the Huygens probe, for instance, came from the Europeans and many of the instru instruments came from the Europeans. And every time Congress tried to kill off this little mission, it, this really huge giant mission, actually, NASA was able to step forward and say, you probably don't want to do that. We like the Europeans and we want them to like us back. It's interesting as we're going through this, like as we're recording this, it's the same story. 
you know, about the yeah. James Webb and the, you know, now the space shuttle is closed. But I mean, that's been the ongoing story is missions almost killed. So when a mission actually makes it off the planet and you can't take it back, <laughs> you know, then then that's, you know, that's when you finally uh, arrived. So, yeah, it launched in 97, but it had to take a pretty cir- circuit circuitous route circuitous to, I'll circuitous go with that. Route to Saturn right right so it it didn't have the most powerful engines ever, any satellite has ever had and uh, so it got gravitational assists from Venus more than once it whipped past the earth got some good images of earth as it went by and finally headed out towards Saturn via Jupiter and got some pictures of Jupiter as it went by that. So we have a spacecraft that basically took a full tour of the solar system on its way out. And there was a big controversy. I mean, if you remember when it was about to launch, there was this big controversy because it had that plutonium reactor on board. And so it was actually, you know, kind of filled with poisonous plutonium. (laughs) And people were worried that, you know, when it would launch, if there was a problem, a launch disaster, it would spread plutonium around the Earth. And as well for the subsequent flybys, when it had to go past the, the Earth, there was another, you know, people were kind of freaked out. Right. So this mission has a, you can't use solar panels when you're out at Saturn. There's just not quite enough sunlight out there. So it has roughly 70 pounds or 32.7 kilograms of plutonium-238, which is a nicely radioactive producing heat as it decays element. And it's from that heat that they're able to generate electricity. And the concern was that it could either blow up on launch and release all of that radioactive material into the atmosphere, or on its one lone flyby, they ran models. And in a worst case scenario, if the mission came through at just the right, perfect, absolutely miraculous, shouldn't actually have much probability of happening, if it came in at just the right angle, it could completely burn up in the atmosphere and distribute all of the plutonium through the atmosphere and cause an additional 5,000 cases of cancer per population of the planet Earth. But it didn't happen, so... It didn't happen. Yeah. And they took the risk because the probability said it wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you can imagine that that being the ongoing controversy for any of these flights that are going to be going out, you know, beyond the warm embrace of the sun. (laughs) You're going to have, you know, you're going to need something like plutonium. We, we might be actually avoiding that problem due to current sediment cuts. We, we actually aren't currently producing plutonium-238, and we're running out of these engines. I believe there's less than five left, and they're all allocated to projects already. Oh, wow. Okay. And so if we want to continue building into the future, we need to turn back on the plutonium-238 production. And that was part of the upcoming budget, but it's one of the items along with the James Webb Space Telescope that's currently axed. So, so Cassini makes this, this um, you know, the flybys of, of Earth and Venus and then made this wonderful flyby of Jupiter, sent back yeah. amazing images. And what, what was great was, was the Galileo spacecraft was at Jupiter at the time. And so the two sent back these, these amazing sort of images in concert together. And, and they actually were able to sort of combine the science from these two spacecraft. It was, it was quite a time. Well, it's, it's one of those rare instances where you can get the up-close view of the spacecraft that's in orbit and get the big-picture view that allows you to see all the context from the, the 
further away spacecraft. And uh, so if you can, if you've ever done the going back and forth between binoculars and eyepiece or binoculars and your eyes, well, they were able to do that by going back and forth between two satellites. Yeah. And so if you like do a search for, for Jupiter, like Google Images and stuff like that, a lot of the full pictures that you'll see of Jupiter were actually taken by Cassini, even though Galileo spent so much time at Jupiter, Galileo was up a lot closer. And so it just didn't get as much nice sort of views from afar. And so they still really rely on those images from Cassini when, you know, when they're showing images of, of Jupiter. So, so Cassini then, you know, made it all the way out to Saturn in what was it? Yeah. 2004? It made yeah. it out in 2004. And, uh, on its way in, as it started what was one of the scarier orbital insertions ever, because you're kind of dodging moons, dodging rings, trying to get yourself into all of it, they, they had to first rotate the spacecraft so that its large dish would basically protect all of its instruments from the dust and debris of flying through the rings, and not through the rings, through a gap. But uh, then they had to turn the spacecraft around so that it could fire its engines in the direction of its motion to radically slow it down for orbital insertion. So this was all sorts of crazy maneuvering, and the spacecraft just took it all in stride. And uh, it was able in June of 2004 to send us pictures of the little battered moon Phoebe and... uh, in July, zip through and put itself into orbit because NASA likes to do everything on national holidays. And 4th of July seemed like a perfectly good time to celebrate another orbital achievement. It's not Canada Day. I don't see what the what is happening then. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, no, and the Amy images coming back from Phoebe were just amazing. I mean, that was just, yeah. you could see, as soon as you saw those images, you knew we were dealing with something you know, this was a whole new way of seeing photographs from space. I mean, they were so good. And then? And then, well, the entire time, this very large spacecraft was carrying a parasite with it. So the Huygens mission was latched on and sucking power from, from its plutonium drive and was carried all the way up until December And on December 25th, the European Space Agency separated off their Huygens probe from Cassini, and it began its long journey to Titan. And it was on January 14th that we were finally able to see the surface of another world that had active geology from atmospheres, from weathering, from rivers, from deltas. And so that symbiotic relationship with the European Space Agency allowed us to basically get two, two major scientific missions for the price of one. Yeah, and there are some amazing um, videos now after the fact. I remember when it was first coming out, the images were pretty rough, and it was, it was really hard to really get a sense of what you were seeing until you actually saw the images on the ground. But since then, people have gone and done a lot of work with the images and sort of built these really neat animations. You can see the, you know, from space watching the, or from, from a really high altitude, watching what Huygens was seeing as it was descending through Titan's atmosphere all the way pretty much down to the surface of the of the moon. And you can see these, just these great, um, you know, the sort of spinning vistas of the, of the surface of the moon until it actually plunked down into the, what was it, like mud 
on the yeah. surface of, of it was kind of, of awesome. And then you see this just yeah, you can't it blows your mind. You're seeing these kind of rolling hills with boulders of you know rock and muck with ammonia it was like, and yeah. It was like Dagobah with no vegetation. Yeah, yeah, no, just just astounding to think what what had gone through to make that happen. So 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 then Cassini no longer had Huygens, but it had done a really nice fly past of Titan. Still had the uh, had gotten rid of its uh, parasite, you know, and uh, and then kept moving, right? Yeah, and one of the amazing things about Huygens was they realized after launch, after the mission was good and far away from the planet Earth, that Huygens had a rather fatal flaw. And they were able to figure out how to compensate for that in real, well, not in real time. They figured it out ahead of time, but they figured out how to compensate in midstream. Um, as we've talked about on this show before, when an object is in motion, it's light, it's radio, it's, it's wavelengths get Doppler shifted. And they had tuned Cassini to listen to Huygens as it dropped through the atmosphere of Titan. And the firmware forgot to take into consideration that there'd be this Doppler shift of the signal. And so when they tested things, they realized many expletives, it won't be able to catch the signal. And um, they figured out how to change the way things were aligned, and they were able to figure out how to make it work so that they could catch all of the data and nothing was lost in the end. Yeah. In this, like, you know, this was around a string of of problems. You remember there was like the, God, what were the other ones? The polar? Mars polar lander? The polar lander or the, yeah, there was, there was like polar two Polar impactors it Yeah, there was into. one that just smashed into the atmosphere and disappeared. There was the Beagle 2 that just disappeared. And then there's yeah. another which they, uh, they had used the wrong, like, like, Imperial and metric system. So there was just right. a string that happened <laughs> yeah. right during a string of, of big problems. And yet there was lots of great, you know, engineering successes as well, where people had right. figured out ways to, you know, make other missions run on like a single gyro and things like yeah. that. Right. So now how come, you know, there's a lot of those missions where like with the, the rovers where they keep going and going and going, but like pretty much once Huygens was was done. That was all we saw of it. Like it sent back a couple of images and then we didn't hear any more news from Huygens. So why so, was that? Uh, battery life. So, so Huygens was a happy little parasite on Cassini drawing energy off of its plutonium thermocells, basically, up until that December 25th launch separation moment. And once it separated, it wasn't carrying its own nuclear fuel cells. It was working on chemical batteries. And the chemical batteries had a finite life, and the mission had a finite life, and they weren't sure it would even survive impact, but it lasted a couple minutes past impact. And um, it just wasn't designed to keep going and going and going. You, you have to cut weight somewhere. You have to right. cut costs somewhere. And in the end, not knowing what they'd land on, they, they budgeted to get as much data for the parachute ride down as they possibly could and um it then yeah. ended yeah so. yeah i can i can kind of imagine if they'd use some of the newer technology right can you imagine if they'd made like some kind of rover technology or had um you know had done something like that that 
that then that would have been, you know, a much better way to, yeah. you know, some of the newer technology with the, uh, you know, spirit and opportunity and stuff. That would have been amazing. Well, it, the problem that they ran into is they had no way of knowing did they need a dust buggy or a swamp vehicle. And uh, when you're not sure if you need to float or you need to roll, it's it's hard to to plan for that. Yeah. All right. So so we got the uh, the cool landing at Titan. And if you want more details, and we've done a whole show on Titan, we've done yeah. a whole show on Saturn, we've done a whole show on Saturn's moon. So you know we're we're more talking about the mission than actually the discoveries on on the moons and the planets. So. Yeah. So so then we, and I mean that was like the first flyby of Titan, but but we did Iapetus. They did, you know, so many flybys. And with Enceladus, we we were able to, for the first time, start to get a sense of what's rejuvenating the rings by the discovery of the geysers coming off of that water pressurized moon. And what's amazing is just like the Mars Exploration Rovers, this is the spacecraft that also won't die. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so here it is. It's in its second mission extension at this point. And they decided to extend it through the equinox that occurred in 2009, which is where we sh- saw the rings completely edge on and seem to disappear into the starlight. And they're now extending it into the next solstice period. So we'll get to see the other pole of Saturn from Earth. Well, Cassini gets to watch how does the atmosphere of Saturn change as the sunlight changes and what's neat is one of its discoveries was this rather terrifying vortex on the pole of saturn and uh it'll be neat to see are there any changes in that eye wall as the thermodynamics of the system changes well, that, it found that strange hexagon shaped storm right yeah yeah and in fact, we added that to one of our Mysteries of the Solar System show, I think. Right. Yeah. So there, there's the strange vortex on Venus, the strange vortex on Saturn. I'm kind of glad we don't have a strange vortex on Earth. It, it's just kind of amazing. And the only thing that's scary right now is while it has been expanded out through the next solstice, there's concerns that right now they're doing senior review of all of the NASA missions that are on extended missions. There's limited funding, and the fear is that maybe this, maybe LRO, maybe who knows, all of these different missions that are up for an extension are being reviewed, and they could die as part of the two point two to $4 trillion budget cuts in the U.S. government. Uh. Yeah, so here's to hoping LRO survives, James Webb survives, Cassini <sighs> yeah. survives. Uh, we want our missions. But as we alluded to earlier in the show, right, this is the story. Like, it's almost like no mission ever gets out alive, Right. you know? They all get beaten up at some point, and really just the toughest ones. It's like some kind of gladiator fight to get a mission launched. Yeah. Um, so, so what would you say are some of the big highlights? What are some of the big discoveries that Cassini made as, as part of its, its you know, mission at Saturn? So I, I have to say my favorite is realizing what the heck happened to Iapetus to cause this two-toned moon to exist and look chewed up the way it does. This is the moon that when you look at it, it has one face that is black, 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 black. And the other side is the shiny, white, highly reflective ice. And what they were able to figure out is 
at some point in the past, this moon, it's rotating so slowly that it has one edge that tends to lead around the orbit. And that edge just collected dust. And that dust made the surface darker. And the darker surface heated up. And the ice didn't melt. It sublimated. But any dust and gas that was trapped in that sublimating ice was then revealed. And it became this feedback system where... The hotter the surface got, the more it sublimated, the darker it got as more dust was revealed. And it's now thought to be several centimeters deep in this black, carbonaceous, gross substance that does not like to reflect light. And it's got that really weird seam. I don't know if they've really closed the book on that yet, have no. they? That, that no, that one they're still trying to figure out. I mean, at a certain level, it's part of the outer solar system. It's had the tar beat out of it, but exactly what caused that we don't know right so so we got a handle on why iapetus has that strange two-toned color right thanks cassini and we found the hexagon yep. thanks cassini yeah we found some new moons and it's always fun to find new moons hiding out in the rings yeah titan just we keep getting awesome new ideas on titan this is this is the moon you know if i was given a choice of europa or titan to send real exploration vehicles to i'm not sure which one i'd choose europa yeah but but then the Submarines, back of my head is like looking but for titan life. is so much more likely to be successful right. yeah i agree the return on europa is probably much greater but we're we're learning so much about titan and the mission is planning to do actually one terrifyingly close flyby of Titan that will then send it on an orbit that makes it just a few thousand kilometers above uh, Saturn's clouds. And it's going to do two of those close flybys, and the second of those close flybys will actually send Cassini on a death orbit into the atmosphere of Saturn. They don't want Titan or Enceladus or any of the other moons that have liquid to potentially get polluted with earth goobers and uh, so rather than let our bacteria get to the surface of one of those moons they're going to suicide the satellite they get pretty reckless with these missions near the end they did that with galileo as well which is they just kept going <laughs> can we you know now let's get some extreme science and then they right. sent it closer and closer and more radiation and then finally they went oh well we can't you know we can't <laughs> kill it this way let's uh, just drop it in but I, but a big part of it as you said is they you know that whatever they do they don't want to um infect any part yeah. of the saturnian system with microbes from earth so in the end cassini is going to be uh, shut off and it's going to be shut off or it's going to be crashed into the planet when they still can talk to it right. right like if if it suffers some kind of big damage or its system completely runs out of power and they can't control it anymore then it's too late right so they're you know they're going to they're going to shut it down sooner than they have to because it's not working anymore right. so um you know we talked about some other discoveries right the the discovery of liquid on titan right so there are methane rain, methane lakes. It's a completely different geology than we're used to that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, there's just so much stuff. We've got the geysers, the ice geysers on Enceladus, and the tiger striping. The, right? the rings were confirmed to have spokes and to have these weird uh, gravitational interactions. They're not as symmetric as you might expect them to be. 
And so we're slowly learning more and more about the dynamics of the rings, finding twists and ropes in the rings. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, what what's kind of amazing is, as well as doing all this science, NASA has reached out through the forums of unmanned spaceflight and said, hey, we'd also like to just get some beautiful Kodak moments. And they've asked the public to contribute what are those times that we should try. And I, I heard Carolo, Carolyn Porco talking once about how they've had to do these crazy maneuvers where as they're flying past a moon, they're rotating the spacecraft and accelerating and imaging and doing all of this stuff at once. But the result is being able to do some absolutely amazing videos. And almost everything can be found over on Emily Lakdawalla's blog, the Planetary Society blog. And what's amazing about what Emily does is if she can't find the image she wants, she gets into the planetary data system and she downloads the images and processes them. So she has some yeah. really amazing stuff. You gave three quick shout outs there. We should slow them down, right? Unma Unmanned Spaceflight is a fantastic forum for talking about uh, various missions. Uh, highly recommend it. As well, Carolyn Porco is the She's the primer investigator, science yeah, investigator PI. for the yeah for the Cassini mission, and has done a better job than pretty much anybody in the whole industry in getting the word out about her mission. I mean, you know, even when I started University Day way back in the day, if I made a mistake, Carolyn was <laughs> was you know was sending me an email right away saying, oh, you know, you missed this, you made a mistake there. But she was also really good about about helping you know me get the word out about things yeah. that we were doing for her mission. So so I think you know anyone else who's going to be involved in this kind of a public affairs mission, look at what she's done. She's done TED talks. She's just been fantastic. So. And she did a Star Trek. You can't you you, you can't leave yeah. that one out. That's just kind of full of wind. Yeah. And then and then Emily Alcdewall over at the Planetary Society, who is the hardest working uh, person in in space media. She's as you said, she's fantastic. Does you, you have to check out? She will she will produce images that nobody else got has, and she does just a fantastic job. So groovy. Okay. Well, I think we're um, we're kind of reaching the end. So when will Cassini end? Where are we at right now? Uh, well, right now we're waiting for the U.S. Congress to get its act together. <laughs> so barring that, it's going to keep going until 2017 and allow us to see the, well, the next solstice. Right. And that's six more years from when we're recording that. And that's like for sure by that time they'll have to deorbit it? It's... Well, nothing's for sure. They have to look and see how the spacecraft is doing, how the spacecraft is behaving. But like you said, if there's the slightest hint of something going wrong, they're going to pull the plug before it has right. to. You, you just can't risk a mission that you know has bacteria on it potentially landing on Titan where, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, there is hints of not statistically certain, but hints of evidence that there's potentially bacteria there. So just no risks allowed. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Pamela. That was great. We'll talk to you next week. We're going to do the uh, the third part in a series. We're going to do the uh, discussion of was it Christian Huygens, right? Yep, Huygens. Yeah, awesome. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Talk to you later, Fraser. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. 
We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville with generous support from Universe Today.